0: Guys, there's a lot going on, isn't there? Summer's wound down. Actually, some of you are back in school already. Uh, Two weeks, that's important, and we're going to email you uh, before that Sunday, but September the 11th, two weeks from today, our schedule changes notably, so with the change of first service, with Sunday school restarting, so I hope you're excited about that. Switching gears a little bit, uh, one of the shortest, consider sort of the sweetest, friendliest uh, books of the Bible and stories in the Bible is out of the book of Ruth, only four chapters long. Uh, you know, if you want to be encouraged sometime and just have a little bit of time, the book of Ruth is a great place to go. Listen to the way this story begins. Ruth one says this, in the days of the judges, in the days of the judges, the story of Ruth follows the book of Judges. Do you guys remember some of the stories from the book of Judges? absolutely some of the most grotesque stories in all the Bible. The book of Judges, the period of the Judges is just uh, horrendous at its low points. It's got some high points too when God sent Judges to restore and redeem Israel. But the lows are really low. And so when you start this book, this frame of reference is important. In the period of the Judges, this terrible time in Israel's history that might have looked a lot like our times today lawless, loveless, faithless, violent, you name it. That's what was going on. So it's instructive in this little book when it starts with that. That's the frame of reference. And what happens in this story? You end up with this pivotal story in in history, and it pivots off this little gal from Moab. She's not a Jew. But you know, the story was Naomi's family had left Israel, time of famine, gone over to Moab. Sons had married, but along the way her husband dies, her two sons die, and here are three women without spouses, and that's not a good thing in the Middle East in their days. And so Naomi tells her two daughters-in-law, hey, I have nothing left to give you, it's been nice, thanks, you should go back to your families and your gods, and one does, but famously, Ruth does not, and you guys probably remember these words, they're, they're read at weddings, but this was said from a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law, that, that, let that sink in for just a minute, from a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law, this is in Ruth 1 verse 16 and 17, when, when Naomi says go back, this is what Ruth says, she replies, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. That's important. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord, and here Ruth uses God's covenant name, may Yahweh. May Yahweh do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And the image you've got in this story is that not from Israel, but from a Gentile, the demonstration of God's loyal love comes into view. Against that horrendous backdrop of their day, here's this gleaming gem, Ruth the by displaying God's kind of, Yahweh's kind of covenant loyal love to Naomi, her mother-in-law. And guys, the story turns on this. Now, big picture, this is all about God's sovereignty and the demonstration ultimately of His covenant loyal love, but you see it with feet on the ground, it starts with Ruth. And because of her covenant love for Naomi, they come back into the land of promise, and God's sovereignly in control, and Ruth's covenant loyal love for Naomi gets spilled over because then Boaz, the kinsman redeemer in this story, he displays loyal, faithful love to Naomi and to Ruth, and marries them. God's loyal love in all of that shines through because, of course, they have a little boy named Obed, and Obed has a little boy named Jesse, and Jesse has a little boy among all of his sons named David. That the line of Christ, the line of God's promised kings in Israel, and then ultimately the Messiah, come about in this story, in this bleak, bleak setting of loyal love displayed by one little Moabite woman, And on that, the hinge of world history is turning. Is that wild? Loyal love, starting with Ruth, overflowing through Boaz, all under God, God's loyal love coming through in these dark, dark times. The book of Ruth displays both God's sovereignty, but it's also a living demonstration of His loyal, redeeming love. Guys, one of the terms in the book of Ruth that's key, and this is a key term throughout the Old Testament, is in, in the ESV, it's translated kindness here three times. It's a word I've talked to you about before. It's the Hebrew Kesed. Depending on your translation, or even in the same translation, this gets translated a little differently. So it might be read as mercy, loving kindness, goodness, faithfulness, steadfast love. This morning, we're going to use the, the term loyal love to define that term kesed. This kindness, mercy, goodness, loving kindness is a loyal dedication from one person to another. It's a commitment that persists. It's born of the faithfulness and dedication of the one giving it, not on the adequacy of its object. Loyal love. This kind of faithfulness and loyal love is used to describe God throughout the Old Testament. In fact, it's also the basis of believers' appeals to God in the Old Testament. So in the book of Exodus, in Exodus 34, do you remember when Moses said to God, "Uh, show me your glory. I've heard you, you've you've appeared to me in the cloud, but I want to see you. And God says, well, you can't see my face, but this is what I do. You're going to hide over here and I'm going to pass by, and I'll reveal myself to you. And as that happens, this is what it says in Exodus 34, verses 5-7, through the Lord descended in the cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now, for God to declare his own name, God is revealing something very important about himself. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, <clears throat> and abounding in loyal love and faithfulness that term faithfulness oftentimes translated truth loyal love and faithfulness are truth when god defines himself to moses that's how he starts i'm the god of loyal love when you read from david the psalmist and the king and the shepherd of israel psalm 23 this is a psalm many of us has memorized without trying When that psalm winds down, it's in the language of the shepherd, David said, surely goodness and mercy, loyal love, will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. His confidence in God as shepherd and on God sustaining him and keeping him was based on his understanding that God had and displayed towards His own loyal love. Matter of fact, I was reading in Psalm 51 this morning, When David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loyal love. David's appeal in the opening of that psalm of confession and the plea for forgiveness is based on God's loyal love. God defines himself not only as holy, which he is ultimately, unlike anything or anyone else, but also as this one who has and is loyal and loving to the objects he sets his love on. Loyal love. If you read through the Old Testament, you see that it's a story of God demonstrating His loyal love to those He set His love on. Isn't it interesting, when you're reading the story in Exodus, you know, Moses is up on the mountain with God, having a great time. God is writing the covenant with His own finger on the two tablets, and before the ink is dry, before the writing is finished, what's Israel doing down below on the plains? They're partying hard, and they're worshiping a calf. In other words, before the covenant, which is conditional, has been finished, they've already broken it. Now what does God do anyway? He keeps covenant faithfulness. He leads them into the land of promise. There's a generation that doesn't go in, but that generation's children do. The nation broke the covenant before the ink was dry, and God fulfills His covenant loyalty, His loyal love anyway. If you read something like the book of Hosea, which is a profound book, it's painful on one hand, but God tells Hosea, you're going to go and you're going to love a woman and she's not going to be faithful to you. She's going to be faithless over and over and it's not going to be good, but God says you're going to live out my story that I've loved a nation that has not returned faithful love to me. But you're going to remain faithful because I remain faithful to my people regardless of their faithfulness to me. The Old Testament is the story, in part, of God demonstrating His loyal love. What happens when you get to the New Testament? So in the New Testament, you see God's loyal love now focused on, and and we could even say enlarged, in the person of God the Son, in the incarnation, in Jesus Himself. John's gospel, probably my favorite gospel. You know, it's really simple on one hand, really profound on the other. Uh, John takes trouble to tie Jesus back to the Old Testament repeatedly, even in his opening chapter. So, you know, in the beginning God created, in the beginning was the Word, John says. Uh, Jesus is the creator of Genesis. He's Yahweh of creation. And then Jesus is the one who tabernacles with us. And Jesus is the one who reveals God's loyal love. Listen to this from John 1.14. John says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. He is full of... Jesus is full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. Now, these are not the same English terms you get out of Exodus 34, but this is clearly another tie from John to make sure that we know that Jesus is Yahweh And all of those characteristics that Israel had seen in Yahweh in the Old Testament are profoundly revealed through Jesus in the New. So those words in the Old Testament, steadfast love and faithfulness, are are, uh, comparative here to grace and truth. This is an intentional tie. Jesus is the same Yahweh God that revealed Himself to Moses. Jesus is that same God. When we get to the New Testament, God's loyal love is demonstrated in the person of Jesus. God gives us His loyal love, if you will, in His own Son. Jesus says, among other things, this in Matthew 28, 20, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You Imagine all the things His disciples were going to go through, and they would no doubt feel like we've been left here on our own. But Jesus says in Acts 1, I'm I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to send the Comforter, and through My Spirit, I will always be with you. My loyal love will never leave you. He says the same thing in Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For He has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. My loyal love will never diminish. Physically, Jesus is gone. The Spirit has come. God's loyal love in Christ through the Spirit is with us always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is the sum. He's the means by which we get God's loyal love today and that's true in salvation it's true with whatever the sin struggles we're going with day by day week by week month by month are it's true in our darkest hours as we're talking about God's loyal love this morning we'll get into some application here in just a minute but before we do we get, we need to remind ourselves oh God's loyal love demonstrated us in Christ when we talk about as we will in a moment Righteous deeds related to loyal love, please don't misunderstand. We are not trying to work up something in us that we don't have. You know, Paul says in Romans 7 that that you and I, in and of ourselves, there's no good thing dwells. Romans 3, how many righteous are there in our midst? Paul says, well, there's not one. We are not asking frail humanity to produce God's kind of loyal love we come to God in faith in Jesus, and we get Jesus, we get the forgiveness of sins, and we get the life of Christ in us. And because Jesus is, and God is, loyally loving by their very nature, when Christ's life is alive in us, Christ's loyal love is seen in us. It's demonstrated out of us to others. So as we work through this this morning, if we get a little conviction that we are not loyally loving the way God is, we don't whip ourselves. We don't berate ourselves. We don't work something up. We simply realize, Lord Jesus, I need more of you in my life. I need the expression of your Spirit more fully developed in me. Our humanity, our fallen humanity doesn't do this. It can't. So we're not, we're not saying that. It's in Christ, the loyal love of God has been given to us. And it's Christ's life in us by the Spirit that produces loyal love in the lives of others. So, we are in the last of our six-week summer series titled, What the Righteous Do, and this morning is, Loyal Love in an Unfriended World. Now, we've talked about some exciting things. We've talked about politics and Facebook and electronic media, and loyal love may sound like a tame ending to an otherwise maybe tumultuous series, but but I would caution I think this is in fact the most important message of the six-week series. God is sovereign. Yes, He is. We want to be informed. Yes, we do. But guys, at the end of the day, it's God's loyal, sustaining love that we depend on and that God wants us to demonstrate to each other. We live in a time that not only grows more lawless, but loveless, faithless, and friendless. We're easily insulted these days. We write people off. We divorce our spouses. We trade one church family for another, like changing clothes, new outfit, new season, put on a new set of clothing. We trade up for bigger houses, newer cars, and more entertaining or simply better placed acquaintances. We unfriend are friends. So, in an unfriended, disloyal, faithless, and unkind world, what does loyal love look like? In the church of Jesus Christ, what does his loyal love look like? In Lion and Lamb Church, what does it look like and what should it look like? And in your life and mine, what does it look like and what should it look like? That's what we're covering this morning. Do you guys know what it is to be unfriended? By the way, I'm not sure what this actually looks like. I'm talking about it because I know the phrase, and I've talked to many of you who have been unfriended or who have unfriended others. I'm not actually sure what it looks like. I'm not sure what button you would push or if somebody gets an email or if you just realize I don't see that person's post anymore. So, sorry, I'm using the phrase, but I don't actually know how this works. But in an online world of Facebook friends, if I share something on my page or yours that you don't like, you might... Maybe you push that button. Who knows? I don't know. You might unfriend me. You might unfriend me. Or I might unfriend you. And sometimes the reason for this is a little different, right? So I may not know you. I may have never met you. I, have made, I may have no hopes of ever seeing you. And I may be your friend on Facebook. And if you unfriended me, it might be like, no big deal. I, we're, we're on different pages and, and I'm unfriended. I'm okay with that. But as I've told you guys before, actually this whole series started because of Facebook interaction within this own church. And people have been friended and unfriended by each other. And then, you know, you know what I've heard? It's like, did they really mean to unfriend me? Was that an accident? Or did they really mean that? And if they did, what do I make of that? Are we not friends? Did I offend them past the point of friendship, Facebook, or in-person, face-to-face, or what's going on with that? Facebook, unfriended. What did I say? Friendship is a tenuous thing these days. Loyal, loving relationships are few and far between. You know, without trying to, I ended up reading a book. still in it, actually. It's called Ordinary. Sustainable Faith in a Radical, Restless World. Michael Horton is the author. I've got some excerpts, because I think he puts his finger right on the money on a number of things that we're talking about today and several others as well. But listen to what he says just about the tenuous nature of our relationships and friendships. He says, and he's talking about young people today, but this could apply to any of us. He says, the experience of young people today is not one of being uprooted as much as of not having had any roots to begin with. As numerous studies indicate, this is just as true in evangelical churches where the average person raised in our circles cannot articulate even the basic message of Christianity. He must mean other evangelistic churches, not ours, surely. We're probably the exception to the rule, or maybe not. The Internet is the quarry from which younger generations craft their own selves and then advertise a desired persona on Facebook. And of course, this has nothing to do with loyal love Friendship, relationship, this is friendship that's all about me. He continues, We are raising a generation of deluded narcissists. Today's college students are more likely than ever to call themselves gifted and driven to succeed even though their test scores and time spent studying are decreasing. A number of recent studies points up the toxic psychological impact of media and technology on children Adolescents and young adults, particularly as it regards turning them into faux celebrities, can you say selfie, the equivalent of lead actors in their own fictionalized life stories. On Facebook, young people can fool themselves into thinking they have hundreds or thousands of friends. They can delete unflattering comments. They can block anyone who disagrees with them or pokes holes in their inflated self-esteem. They can choose to show the world only flattering, sexy, or phony, photo- funny photographs of themselves, dozens of albums full, by the way. They can speak in pithy short posts and publicly connect to movie stars and professional athletes and musicians they like. Using Twitter, young people can pretend they are worth following as though they have real-life fans when all that is really happening is the mutual fanning of false love and false fame. Using computer games, our sons and daughters can pretend they are Olympians, Formula One drivers, rock stars, or sharpshooters. On MTV and other networks, young people can see lives just like theirs, portrayed on reality TV shows, fueled by such incredible self-involvement and self-love that any of the real-life characters should really be in psychotherapy to have any chance at anything like a normal life. These are the psychological drugs of the 21st century and they are getting our sons and daughters very sick indeed. Isn't that telling? Now I'm sure this is going on every place but Lion and Lamb Church. And I'm comforted by that and I thank you for that. But maybe, but maybe some of that, maybe some of that, maybe a little of that's going on here too. And to the degree that it is, We're missing out, aren't we? Because that's not the life God has called us to. And it's really a life, friends, devoid of real friendship and God's kind of loyal love, defining loyal love. Um, When Kathy and I were talking about getting married way, way back, back in the day, back in a millennia earlier, actually, come to think of it, uh, I was moving back to Topeka from the northwest where I love to live and on the coast, on the Washington coast, matter of fact. And I'd come from Montana, the Rocky Mountains, God's country, big sky country. I'd been living up there for almost three years. Kathy was in Lawrence. We moved back to Topeka to get hitched. So in the summer of 1980, we got married, and I came back broke and uh, didn't really have a great way to make a living. And my desire was we get back, we get married, and we head west. We go back to where Mike wants to live. Well, we got pregnant right away, a honeymoon baby. Rachel uh, was a honeymoon baby, you know, nine months after our wedding. We have a little girl, and, and I'm not making much money yet. And now we've got hospital bills, one thing, another, emergency C-section. You know how those things go. So I don't have the money to move us right on back where I want to go. And, you know, as time goes by, you're trying to plug in. You're, we're in a church. We eventually get plugged into a church, and I'm confused because this was not the life I thought I was called to and it's like, Lord, would you just speak? We need a sense of where you want us. Where do you want us? And so literally during a worship experience, we've been praying, we've been fasting. Lord, do you want us to plug into this church? And uh, we're singing this song out of Isaiah. And the, the lyrics go that they will be trees of righteousness, the plantings of the Lord, that God might be glorified. And as we sang that song, I knew God was saying, Mike, this is where I'm planting you. This is it. You're planted right here. That was liberating on one hand, and it was a little hard on the other. Liberating, okay, there's clarity. We're plugging in with this group of people. A little disappointment because Topeka was not where I wanted to live. You know, my memory in Montana, literally, I was thinking about sitting in a car in Kansas, in Topeka, on South Topeka Boulevard in the middle of summer with no air conditioning, sweating, sweating. That was my memory of Topeka. It's like, Lord, I don't want to go back. don't want to live there. But it was clarifying, right? So, okay, this is it. This is where you plug in. We made friendships in that setting, guys, that we still have today, 35 years later, that would never have occurred if we had simply moved on. Part of my struggle as time would go on was still, though, this sense of disappointment. Lord, Could I go back? Matter of fact, guys, we have looked. I've looked at Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, New Mexico in the past. What's their tax rates? What's their job market look like? Because I was still looking for a way to head west. And one of the verses that has come back to me time and time again as I would pray and as I would read in the Word was Psalm 37, verse 3. And I knew it was one of those defining verses that God was speaking to me routinely over and over and over again. And it's this. In Psalm 37 the temptation is for is to look at the uh, the proud and the well to do and to envy what they have and david's looking at life from a different framework and he says this trust in the lord and do good dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness plant or or grow where i planted you and be faithful be loyal Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. That one verse for me was defining year after year after year. Lord, I'd really like to move. Are we good to go now? Mike, grow where I planted you. Be loyal and be faithful. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Guys, if you don't have the desires of your heart, it's probably because we haven't made God and His things first. When we delight in the Lord, we tend to want what God wants. He's free to give us the the desires of our heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him. He will act. He'll bring forth your righteousness as the light, your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. But over and over, God would say, Mike, grow where I planted you. Stay in the land, stay where you've been planted, and be faithful, be loyal. Keep doing the things I've given you to do. When the wicked were flourishing, when their Facebook accounts had tons of friends, when their stocks rose, their lives appeared golden, God said, stay where you're at and be loyal. Practice faithfulness and loyalty. Love the ones you're with. Practice loyal love to those God has put in your life. At a friendship level, we should have, we should know, we should be demonstrating loyal love just related to friends, just friendships generally. You know, if you read in 1 Samuel 20 and it comes up, it's more than that one chapter, but that's an important chapter. 1 Samuel 20 <clears throat> the friendship of David and Jonathan is a big deal. So Jonathan is the son of King Saul. And you know what that means. That means Jonathan is in line to be the next king. Only Jonathan knows something about his friend David. And Jonathan actually knows because he tells David, I know you're the next king. I know you're God's chosen one. I know God's favors on you. And you're going to be the next king. And in fact, he tells him, when you come into your kingdom, I'll be there at your side. And even though Jonathan could have, with King Saul, tried to get rid of David for his own benefit, he practices loyal love. He does whatever's in his power to do to protect David from his murderous father and to bless him. And these two friends make a covenant with each other. They formalize that friendship by making a covenant with with each other. And basically it was this. If I have any power to bless you or your family, I will. And I will never use my power to harm you or your family. Now, of course, Jonathan's life is cut short because with his father he dies in the war with the Philistines. David, who lives, who comes to the throne in 2 Samuel chapter 9, he's on the throne, he's elevated, he says this, Are there any descendants of Saul left that I can show faithful, loyal love to? And guess what? Jonathan had a son who still survived, Mephibosheth. And David has him come and eat at his table. He gives him all the lands that had been King Saul's, gives them all back. And now he's a landed guy who has everything he could need. He's, he's crippled, but he's being taken care of. Guys, this is in a time when kings killed not only other kings or, or aspirants, they killed all their family members. So no one could come in and try and take the kingship away. You have exactly the opposite. Jonathan you have saying, the guy that would be king says to David, you're king and I'll be glad to be there with you to serve alongside you. And then that gets flipped around when David says, out of loyal love, I'm not going to kill those who might otherwise be my enemies. I'm showing them the loyal love, the covenant, loyal love that Jonathan and I pledged to each other. Do, do you, and, and when, when I'm asking these questions, we need each personalize this, do you have friends like that? Do you have friends that you know they'll do anything they can in their power to bless you or to help you in your time of need? And do others know that you are that kind of friend for them? This should go in both directions. It went in both directions for Saul, or for David and Jonathan. Do we have those kinds of relationships, of friendships, that are defined by loyal love, by that kind of commitment and care to others? Job said... To a group of pseudo-friends, he who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. That when it's in my power to bless or help a friend and I don't, I am not living in the appropriate fear and acknowledgement of God. Do we have those kinds of Jonathan and David friendships? Loyally bound friendships with others. Do we have those? How about just related to brothers and sisters in the faith in the local church? Do we have these just as a commitment in the bonds of Christ? Do we have those in the relationships we have within the church? Listen to Horton again from his book, Ordinary, on this theme. He says, if our relationship with Jesus is like a contract, then we bring the same logic with us to church. God, you do these things and I'll do those things. Kind of like living under the old covenant. We choose a local church the way we choose a neighborhood, a phone company, or a new car. We might become a member, or we might not. There may not even be membership since that would be too formal and interfere with a person's relationship with Christ. Instead, church leaders will bend over backwards to make sure people, at least the right people, are happy. Because they know you can go to the church down the highway, one that has a wider menu of options, With such an anonymity, there is, of course, no church discipline, that is, genuine spiritual oversight and care. It's all part of the contract. If you're not fully satisfied with the service, there are plenty of other providers out there to make you happy, at least for the time being. Now, the church as a business has sort of been a a default model for several decades now. I don't know if you guys remember John Wimber. Uh, Wimber was well-known, had conferences around the country... uh, decades ago, uh, one of the things he said that I thought was interesting, and I think he was right, um, he said it's a given that people are, are, are going to go through, they won't stay at your church, at a local church, and that his goal in being a leader in a church was to lengthen the distance between the front door and the back door. His hope rose no higher than that, because he said this was the thing. Uh, Churches have become businesses. We provide goods and services. Those who come to the church are consumers. They buy the goods and services. And that's exactly what Horton is talking about. And do you not find that this is the case? You know, if you've got to replicate uh, programs and goods and services to keep people, you're just providing consumers something with, with what they want. But that is not the church. That model is not the New Testament church model. But that is de facto the way many churches are operating today. We don't want to be that kind of church. It's consumerism. And just like the selfies and the Facebook, it's all about me. So if I'm on church staff, you're here to make me feel important. And I'm here to give you goods and services. And it's a a contractual exchange. And that's what's going on in a lot of churches. There's no depth, though. There's no commitment. There's no loyal love contrast that with the New Testament church thinking of Acts chapter 4 verses 32 through 37 you remember because the Spirit because Christianity the New Testament was born as far as the Spirit being given on the day of Pentecost and all those Jews from around the world had come to Jerusalem and they got saved and they didn't want to go back home immediately they wanted to remain part of that and they ran out of funds and so here all these Christians what are they going to do for each other the Spirit of Christ has come they've been saved They're filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that look like? Well, in part, it looked like this. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. The early church demonstrated loyal love. It was not consumerism. It was not what can I get. It's what are the needs in the body. And let's work together to take care of those. It was loyal love being demonstrated. Uh, Friendship, too, thinking of the bonds of loyal love related to marriages today as well. So thinking of friends, brothers and sisters in the household of faith. Now speaking of spouses, drawing from Horton again in the book Ordinary, he says this, wrestling daily with whether they want to remain married to each other, many couples seeking counseling expect a breakthrough, preferably in the first session. Marital problems are treated like medical problems. Make them go away. We can benefit from a good marriage conference, but then we return home and find ourselves back in the everydayness of actual marriage. It is there in the daily grind that we have to die to ourselves, loving and serving our closest neighbor. Nothing is more sanctifying than another person in our life. Friends, To aspire to loyal love to friends and the church, if we're not doing it with our spouse, is hypocritical. Like the book of Ruth, loyal love begins at home. It begins with our spouse. It begins with our children. If we're not practicing it at home, probably anything else that we're doing is a sham also. So do our marriages display? And guys, with all the bumps, right? Everybody sins. Husbands and wives sin against each other. It's not that any of this is perfect. Friends sin against each other. We in the household of faith sin against, we blow it. Absolutely. With all of that, loyal love just keeps coming back. Or do we keep coming back in our marriages, in our friendships, and in the relationships in the church? Uh, entertain me and maybe help yourself. Work through this. This is brief test. Self-examination here. This is on your study sheet too, by the way. By asking ourselves just some questions. So the first question for me is very simple. It's simply, do you have friends? Do you have friends? Maybe we should qualify friends too. Do you have people that really know you and care about what happens in your life? And that it's mutual, it's back and forth. And that you know you're there for each other. Do you have friends? Period. If you don't have friends, it's, it's worth asking why? Why? You know, there's one of the translations of the Old Testament out of Proverbs says, he who would have friends must show himself friendly. If you look at your life and say, you know, I realize I really don't have friends, then we need to ask the second question, why is that? You know, some of us don't have friends because we're not friendly. Because we're the selfie generation, it's all about me. You're to be my friend, I'm not a friend to you, that's not what this is about. You are supposed to be a friend to me you don't have friends there's probably a reason why if you're not willing to befriend others to get up out of your seat to go out of your way to be a friend of others is it any surprise that you don't have friends <clears throat> so first just do we have friends period if we don't why is that because that's not what we're called to why is that do you have many old friends you know, the saying is it takes a long time to grow an old friend. What happens is you and I interact with each other as friends? We sin. We offend each other, don't we? So that must mean that if we have old friends, it must mean that we're practicing some kind of forgiveness. We're, lo- we're looking over, overlooking offenses. We're probably doing something along these lines of loyal love if we've got Old friends. Do we have old friends? If we don't, again, why don't we? Why don't we? Do we have friends we can call at any time with an emergency? Do you have people in your life that you're not related to by blood? That if they called you in the middle of the night and they said something's happened, I need help, that you, without thinking, you just know, I get up and I go help. If you don't, what does that say about loyal love in our relationships? Can you call someone else and know that it's inconvenient, but I'm presuming on the bonds of loyal love because they're there for me and I'm there for them and I'll call them at midnight because something happened and I, and I need help. Do we have people that are willing to call us and that we're willing to call in the quiet of the night because we know we're there for them and they're there for us? Guys, are we speaking the truth in love to our friends even when we know it may cause friction? Are we willing to speak the truth in love? Friends, if as friends, as brothers and sisters in the faith, if in our marriages we're not willing to speak the truth in love, who in the world will? Who will show us our blind spots? Who will help us grow in faith if not those that we're interacting with? Are we willing to do that? Can others confide in us as a friend and know that their confidence won't be betrayed to others? You know, in the age in which sharing and hearing, hearing and telling the latest thing is the thing, can we take those confidences in and they stop with us? And we pray for that person, but they know that confidence is confidential. Can people approach us, can our friends approach us with a critique and and have us not offended? not leave mad? Are we willing to say thanks for being willing to share and let me pray and think about that and get back with you? Does that define our relationships too? Are we willing to give or to receive critiques? How disposable are our friendships? This is one that's come up time and time again. How disposable are our friendships? For instance, if you were offered a better paying job in another community would the relationships you already have right where you're at, would they bear any weight whatsoever in making a decision whether you move to another place? If they don't, what does that say about the value of your relationships? If we don't weigh that, now it doesn't mean that God doesn't call us on, right? Some of us, it's going to be clear, God has moved us from one place to another. I'm not saying that. When when we're exercising options, thinking through, praying through these things, does the fact of these relationships we have with others, does that enter our mind as we consider, Lord, is this from you? Or do you want me to stay right where I'm at? To pursue those loyal bonds of love where I'm at. In an unfriended age when we're living out the faith and the bonds of loyal love, is that what, in fact, we're doing? Guys, we are going to start in five a five-week Sunday school class, that's in two weeks, September 11th, to introduce the concept of covenant membership in Lion and Lamb. The elders and the deacons think this is an important thing spe- specifically and strategically for us, and we'll explain some of that along the way. But my hope is that if you already consider Lion and Lamb, your church home, that you will say so by becoming a covenant member. By, by saying, this is the place God's called me, and I'm all in. I'm bound in the bonds of loyal love here. And I don't mean that we simply sit through a Sunday school session and sign a form that says, I'm in. This is in part what covenant membership at Lion and Lamb means. By God's grace and as able, we will give generously of our finances and substance so the church family is adequately provided for and the church's missions are funded. That's economic. We will serve diligently with our time and talents. You know that time for many of us, we have more time than we have money. Or we have more money than time, but time and money are invaluable to most of us. You can only give time away once. You can't, one thing you do with time and it's done. Fellowship intentionally so that we are built up and are building up others in the common faith. That we're intentional about plugging in loyally, faithfully over time with others in the church. Pray regularly for our brothers and sisters in faith for church leadership and missions. You know, we send out a church prayer calendar every month for a reason that we believe that we should be committed to each other in prayer. I hope you're using those. We should look for opportunities to invite others into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This says that we share a love for others that's expressed through simply communicating the gospel and we'll meet together regularly for corporate worship and teaching from the Bible. If in that Sunday school session, if you're still figuring out where God wants you, Lion and Lamb may not be it. And if it isn't, that's okay. Because we want folks to be where God's called them to be. Bottom line, for sure, for real. If it's here, we hope you'll plug in as a covenant member. If it's not, we hope you'll plug into the other local church, wherever that is, whichever that is, and do the same thing there, because that's what we're called to. Last quote from Horton. When everything turns on my free will, relationships, even with God, are contracts that we make or break. When everything turns on God's free grace, relationships, even with each other, become gifts and responsibilities that we accept as God's choice and will for our good and His glory. So, in closing, God give us a willingness to serve in the place and time He gives us. God give us faithfulness in difficult circumstances. God, give us loyal love in our marriages. God, help us live against the shallow, unfeigned, unfriended spirit of this age and demonstrate instead the love God has shown us in Christ. Closing with a verse from Psalm 11. Engaging in our time and spheres with grace and confidence, knowing that the Lord is righteous, He loves righteous deeds, the upright shall behold His faith. In Jesus' name, Amen.